inside the inner core. It had been pitch black, uh, pitch black apart from the candelabra burning. Now, it had seven candlesticks on this candelabra, and it was fueled by olive oil. It was burning this olive oil. You had seven individual flames on this candelabra. Now, what is this picture? I've told you now, it is a picture of God's Spirit with its seven uh, lights that would shine bright and illuminate now the table of showbread. Remember, the bread obviously is a picture of the bread of life, the showbread. Uh, and you have Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, and you also have not just the living word, but the written word that is the bread of life. And now you have the seven lights illuminating the bread of life, this table of showbread. Now, to understand what's going on here, go back to Isaiah chapter 11, and look at what it says in verses 1 through 3. Why seven on the Jewish menorah? Why seven individual lights? Uh, and I'm convinced this is an absolutely remarkable picture here of what God is teaching. If I can find the book of Isaiah, there it is, uh, chapter 11. I want you to see the seven manifestations of God's Spirit. Remember, there's only one God's Spirit, but He manifests Himself in seven ways. And this is, this is a messianic prophecy. The prophecy here has to do with Jesus Christ, but specifically how the Spirit of God is going to be anointing the Son of God. It says in verse 1, of Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. We know who that is. It's Jesus, who indeed was in the lineage of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now I want you to see, there's seven things here that God tells us the Spirit of God is going to do to anoint this one that would grow out of the root of Jesse, speaking, of course, of Jesus himself being that one that would grow uh, as a branch out of the root of Jesse. He says, I'm going to send the Spirit of the Lord, and I want you to count with me. you got seven lights on the Jewish candelabra, representing the seven manifestations of God's Spirit, illuminating the table of showbread. You have the Spirit of the Lord, there's one. You have the Spirit of wisdom, there's two. The Spirit of understanding, there's three. The Spirit of counsel, there's four. Spirit of might, there's five. Spirit of knowledge, there's six. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord, there are seven. So you have the seven manifestations of God's spirit. This one spirit, but the spirit of God manifesting himself in seven different ways. And this is speaking specifically of the anointing of God's spirit upon God's son when he would come. And of course, you remember this is what happened. Uh, as Jesus was baptized, remember what it says. We heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then it said a spirit, the spirit of God, like a dove descending on him. And at that moment, the spirit of God descends upon the son of God and anoints him in these seven ways. And so now you see what's going on with the seven lights or the seven flames on the Jewish menorah. Now I want you to see that 
uh, these weren't wax candles that had to be replaced daily. No, instead it was the oil that had to be replaced continually. This candelabra was being fueled by olive oil. It was to be burning day and night, 24-7, 365, constantly illuminating the table of showbread. Go back to Leviticus chapter 24, and look what it says now in verse 2. It says, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Now you need to underline or maybe circle two words there, pure and continually. It had to be pure olive oil, and it had to be done continually. And so we're speaking here of the first pressing. The, the first pressing of those olives was the most valuable oil. It's this, this extra virgin olive oil we might call it today. It's the best and purest. And uh, they were to take that first press of these olive oils. Of course, olives and uh, olive oil specifically is still a staple throughout the Middle East, even to this day, thousands of years later. Always has been for centuries a staple. Uh, and in ancient days, it was even more important because it was not just used for food, but it was used for fuel. And so he's saying, I want you to take here the olive oil, and I want it to be pure olive oil, and I want it to you to use it for a continual burn of this candelabra. Notice, just as the olives, it said it had to be pressed, had to be crushed, had to be beaten. And this is a picture of what happens in your life and my life. Listen, if we indeed are going to shine and live with the anointing of God's Spirit upon our life so that we can shine the light on the Son of God because the Spirit of God is fueling our life, I want you to see what that requires. It, 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 it demands that self is shattered. And what they would do is they would take these olives and they would put them in a vat and just uh, picture a gigantic grinding type mechanism. They would put them in a large vat maybe six feet across, uh, and uh, they, it would it in some way would be um, on a wheel, and they would start this motion of grinding and walking in circles, and it was often done by a beast of burden, could have been done by uh, a couple of men, but they would start grinding those olives in a press, in an olive press. And this is, uh, incidentally, the Garden of Gethsemane. There's olive trees there today, if you're going on the Holy Land tour with us, that date almost from the time of Christ. Incidentally, olive trees almost never die. They just continue to put on new shoots. Uh, and that is the implication when it says that Jesus would be a branch from the root of Jesse. Uh, interestingly here enough that olive trees, they virtually never die. When one part begins to die, another part becomes alive. They just put on new shoots. So you have a picture here of Jesus, who is the shoot from the root of Jesse. Uh, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember what he's praying? He's praying, Father, if there be some other way. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane that was literally an olive press. It was a garden of olive trees, and it was a place where these olives were pressed into oil, where they were ground, where they were crushed, and Jesus is now being crushed under the weight of the responsibility of going to the cross and paying for the sins of everybody on the cross of Calvary. And of course, it is there where he 
He sweated great sweat drops of sweat and blood, a medical condition that is still known today in the medical community and a condition that happens under the weight of extreme duress as he was being crushed and ground even before he got to the cross under the weight of the sin uh, and the responsibility that was awaiting him. I want you to see in some way now that's a picture of you and me. As New Testament priests, our responsibility while we wait for the king to establish that kingdom uh, is to in some way right now keep the light shining on the table of showbread. Uh, we are to be shining the light on the Word of God and the Son of God. Uh, and I want you to see in some way it's, it's true of you and I. How do we do this? I want you to remember it was the fuel of the oil that kept the light burning. And of course, oil throughout Scripture, obviously, everybody knows this, is a picture of God's Spirit, the anointing of God's Spirit upon your life. But you don't get the anointing of God's Spirit to shine bright for God and to live with the seven manifestations of the Spirit of God upon your life, as Jesus did, apart from, in some way, being crushed and being pressed. Of course, this is dealing now with the crucified life. This is the implication of Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Listen, Jesus lives in you, but until you get out of the way, he cannot live through you. See, the Spirit of God came to live inside of you already. But as long as you are living in the power of self, you cannot live in the power of the Spirit. And so what we're dealing here is with the crucified life. Until you allow God to crush you, in some way crucify you, and shatter self and sin in you, the Spirit of God cannot begin illuminating through you. This is the implication of Luke 9.23, what did Jesus say? If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Oh, what is the implication? You want to be a New Testament priest? You want to fulfill your New Testament function and shine the light of God upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Then it's going to require two things, self-denial and self-dying. See, self has to get out of the way. See, we live at a time of Christianity where we don't want to deny self anything. Uh, we, we live at a time of prosperity theology where, you know, the gospel is all about making myself happy, and Jesus has promised that I'll be healthy and I'll be wealthy, and of course, that's just silly. As a matter of fact, that's complete heresy. But listen, even if you don't fully believe that, in some way, I'm convinced, because we live in this prosperity bubble known as America that we have a faulty expectation of what we ought to be receiving from God for following Him. You know what Jesus was promising His followers? You follow me, here's what's going to cost you. Everything. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross. And on Jesus' day, listen, a cross meant one thing. A cross meant death, destruction, torture, execution. Can you imagine what His followers we're picturing when he said those words. He, they, they weren't picturing a cross as in something you wear. They were picturing a cross as in something you bear. And he was saying, this is the cost to follow me. This, this is what it means now to be a New Testament priest. What do we do while we wait for the king to return, to establish that year of jubilee that is a picture of the millennial kingdom, a thousand years of peace and rest, 
Paradise lost, paradise regained. He says, listen carefully. I want you to shine the light from the Spirit of God upon Jesus, the Son of God. I want you to illuminate the Word of God. But listen, if you want the light of God, if you want to bear the light of God, if you want to be the lamp in the hand of God, you've got to be the fuel of God. You see, you've got the fuel of the Holy Spirit already. It's the anointing of the oil of God upon your life. It's the anointing of God's Spirit as a child of God. You have it already. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1 and verse 8? He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witness of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, he's promised supernatural power, Holy Spirit power, dunamis power. That word dunamis from which we get the word dynamite. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses of me. Now listen, that word witness is the word in the Greek, martis from which we get the word martyr. And literally what his first century followers heard was this, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be martyrs of me in Jerusalem, to be Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Listen, they literally were following him in a way that was going to cost them their life. And in laying down their life, only then, were they going to live with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in their life? Do you see the implication now? In the same way, it says in verse 2, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives from or for the light to make the lamps burn continually. These olives were going to be crushed. They were going to be ground. That's a picture of our crucified life. The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Because only as self is crucified, as self is consecrated, as self is completely uh, shattered, can we begin to live in the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the power of the Spirit is then released in our life. Now, I'm telling you, this is the problem in modern Christianity, especially in the American church in our present society. The problem is the light is going out all over our nation. And the light is going out on our watch. It is the church, it is you and I as New Testament priests that are keep the light shining continually. That's what he told him. Listen, I want the light to shine continually. Yet at this very moment I speak, the light is going out in our nation. Can I tell you why? Because we have failed to keep the light shining. In this age of Laodicean Christianity, we live in this late hour of church history. As I studied the book of Revelation and did that study some time ago that you can still see on our website as we studied these seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, we learned that not only were these churches real first century churches historically, but each of them in some way prophesied seven stages of church history, the Laodicean church not coincidentally being the seventh church because they represent the seventh and last stage of church history. Remember the number seven, the number of completion. We're living in the final stage of church history where the age of the church, this dispensation of church or dispensation of grace is coming to an end right before the next dispensation, that being the millennial kingdom. And you know what he said to the Laodiceans? And you tell me whether or not this describes the present church hour in which we live. He said, I know your works 
that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, I will spew thee. I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say you are rich and increased with goods and know not that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What a scathing rebuke that Jesus himself gave this Laodicean church of the first century that very much pictures the church of our present society in the 21st century. Listen, the problem is we don't want to deny ourselves anything. We don't want to suffer anything. Uh, we want Jesus, but we want our junk. I want you to see that is why the lights are going out because we failed to keep the light shining on the table of showbread. Now, here's the good news. Just because we live in a Laodicean age doesn't mean we can't be a Philadelphian church. And just because you're surrounded by Laodicean Christians, lukewarm, apathetic, complacency, apathy, materialistic, I want you to see just because we live at a Laodicean time doesn't mean you can't be a Philadelphian Christian. And uh, unlike the Laodiceans that he condemned, it was the Philadelphians that he commended. He said, I've set before you an open door that no man can shut. You know why? Because he said, you've done two things. You have kept my word. You've not denied my name. And you acknowledge you have but a little strength. That's a Philadelphian church in the Laodicean age. We recognize we have but a little strength for all that we have, all the programs and the buildings and the budgets and the finances and facilities, apart from the power of God's Spirit and the move of God's Spirit. We've got nothing, and we're desperate for Him still. He said, because you've, you've walked in humility, you confess your desperate need for Jesus above all things. Listen, because you've not denied my name, because you have kept my word, not compromised my word, I'm set before you an open door that no man can shut. That ought to be what we aspire to be. In this Laodicean age, a Philadelphian church, a church that shined brightly in dark, dark times. Now, these uh, olive um, oil, these olives, they represent in some way you and I, the anointing of God's Spirit upon our life as we allow the cross to crucify our flesh daily, to shatter self, to grind uh, the self and selfishness, self-centeredness uh, to powder the Spirit of God, the oil, the anointing oils released in our life so that we keep shining bright for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I don't think it's coincidental again at all that did you know in Scripture, according to Romans chapter 11, the olive tree is a picture of the spiritual life of Israel where the fig tree is a picture of the national life of Israel, and Jesus prophesied the rebirth of Israel nationally in Matthew chapter 24. Think about the miraculous rebirth in 1948 of Israel as a nation. And I'm telling you, Jesus prophesied it. He saw it, and he spoke of it in Matthew 24 when he started to learn. He said, learn the parable of the fig tree. When her branches and her leaves are yet tender, uh, speaking of in the spring, when it begins to put its leaves back on, he said, when you see that in the spring and that fig tree begins to put its, its tender shoots back on, its tender leaves back on, you know that summer is near. He said, know also that my coming is near. And that fig tree, a picture of Israel being reborn 
after being dormant and all but dead for 2,000 years. It was reborn as a nation. But did you know they've been reborn nationally? But did you know that Israel is still dead and dormant spiritually? Most Jews in Israel are not believing Jews. They're secular Jews. And I want you to see that God prophesied also through Paul that one day they would reborn, be reborn spiritually and grafted back into God's family even as they were miraculously reborn nationally. And where the fig tree speaks of the national life of Israel, the olive tree speaks of the spiritual life of Israel. And for all those theologians that say that God is done with Israel, that the Abrahamic covenant is broken, that God has now turned his attention exclusively to the Gentiles, and he's done completely and forever with the Jews. Well, they've got a lot of explaining to do. First of all, how do you explain that Israel's even here today? Because historically, statistically, they shouldn't be, except that God preserved them miraculously. But Paul said very clearly in Romans chapter 11, verse 23, that if you and I, as wild olive branches, were grafted into the olive tree, how much easier will it be someday when God takes the natural olive branches that were broken from the tree and grafts them back into the tree, speaking of one day specifically the Jews being reborn spiritually, that one day they're going to see Jesus indeed as the prophesied Messiah, that they will confess Jesus indeed as the promised one, the Messiah, God's son, and he's going to graft them back into that olive tree. And I want you to see in some way that's what's being pictured here because that's going to happen in the tribulation. It's in the tribulation that God is going to take Israel as a nation. He's going to grind them to powder in the tribulation, just as this oil would only emerge from those olives as those olives were crushed and ground in an olive press. So that's going to happen in the tribulation. According to Revelation 7, it's going to happen in beginning with 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000. So doctrinally, those olive trees and those olives specifically picture the Jews, but do you know devotionally, they're a picture of you and me too. We must allow God, to do whatever it takes uh, to crush and grind our self-nature to powder. So self gets out of the way, and the Spirit of God can finally be released now in our life. You see, just as the candlestick shined in the darkness of that inner core, so we're to shine in the darkness of the time and place we live. As that Old Testament priest would walk through the door, from the outer court into the inner court, it'd be pitch black, apart from that seven-stemmed golden candelabra. And it would be illuminating the darkness, shining on that table of showbread. That's a picture of you and me. You see, we are to shine in the darkness of our world. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, while he is here, he's the light of the world. But right now he's not here, he's there. And that's why in Matthew chapter 5, he said, you're the light of the world. We're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Even so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, the olive oil, which is fueling the candlestick, is a type of the anointing of God's Spirit. And only as the oil of God's Spirit is burning in our life, being released in our life, can we shine the light on the Son of God because we're being filled 
with the Spirit of God. Here's the point. If you want the fire of God, you must become the fuel of God. Your life must become the fuel of God. As you become a martyr, that's what it means to become a witness, Acts 1 and verse 8. As you lay down your life for Christ, suddenly the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, begins shining through you. As you apply the cross daily to your life, Luke 9, 23, denying self, taking up your cross, laying down your life, the Spirit of the living God begins to shine in your life, to shine on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see that's the work of the ministry as it relates to the Old Testament priests. In some way, that's the work of the ministry as it relates to the New Testament priests. So this golden candelabra, this candlestick with the seven individual flames shining, first of all, it's a picture of God's Spirit, according to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. But did you know it's also a picture of something else? It's a picture of God's Spirit, but it's also a picture of the church for the purpose of illuminating God's Word. And here's the reason why. You cannot separate God's Spirit from God's church. And so go back to uh, Revelation chapter 1, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Remember, the Bible is a self-defining book. As God uses typology, as He uses symbols, you never just have to arbitrarily think up what you think it might mean. That's where a lot of people go wrong. God will always define it for you as you compare Scripture to Scripture. So uh, John sees a vision in Revelation 1, and Jesus himself is going to define that symbolism in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. John has seen uh, two symbols. He has seen Jesus standing with two things in his hands, and Jesus is going to tell us exactly what they mean in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand with the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So John sees seven of these Jewish menorahs, these candlesticks, the lampstands. He sees seven of them in Jesus' hands, and he says each of these seven candlesticks represent these seven churches. You see, you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, are fueled by the Spirit of Christ. You can't separate the Spirit of God from the church of the Son of God. And so in some way, it's a twofold type. It's a twofold symbol. Uh, this candelabra is a picture of God's Spirit and the seven manifestations of God's Spirit upon the Son of God first and you and I second. But it's also a picture of the church. And just as that candelabra was shining on that table of showbread, that bread, remember, a picture of the bread of life, the written word and the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Bible as the Word of God, that is to be a work of you and I as those that are members of His church. You see, you cannot separate the Spirit of God from the church of God. And that means you and I have a responsibility as the church to be shining the light and illuminating the light on God's Word and God's Son. Because we live at a time where darkness is descended. And I want you to just remind you of something. We've always lived in a place of darkness. And I think it's, it's really important that we don't fall into this faulty thinking of, well, well, I long for the good old days. Well, just when was that? 
Because whatever era in your mind's eye was the good old days, I can tell you in the good old days, there was a lot of bad things going on then too. So, I mean, let's not get too idealistic in our thinking, quite frankly, because sin and depravity have always uh, marked every human society since the fall of Adam in Genesis chapter 3. But let's also be equally uh, realistic about the times in which we live. Um, we're living at a time, this late hour, where I'm convinced we are returning to the days of, Mo, uh, days of Noah. Remember what Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. We're living at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what he said, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. We live at a time, at least in the Western Hemisphere, of Western civilization that was historically built on a Judeo-Christian foundation. The, the moral values and the ethic of a Judeo-Christian foundation is radically now changing. The Bible prophesied toward the time of the end, according to Daniel chapter 2, in some way a revived Roman Empire, not just geopolitically, but I'm convinced culturally and morally. We're returning to the days of Rome. In the very place that Christianity was born, a Greco-Roman society, we are now returning, and it's a place of great darkness and great depravity. And this is what Jesus meant, I'm convinced. In John 9, 4, he said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, while Jesus was here, he was the light of the world, according to John chapter 1. But because he's not here, he's there. He hasn't left the world in darkness. He says, now you're the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5. Yes, it's nighttime on planet Earth, but at this time of night, we are children of the light. We are the ones that are to be in some way shining the light. We are the lampstands now in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as he said, these lampstands I held, these seven lampstands you saw are the seven churches. Do you realize abundant life and whatever church you might attend Listen carefully, we are the lampstand in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be the light of God shining upon the Word of God and illuminating to the world the Son of God. And one day, the beautiful thing is this, the light is going to shine forever. It will be eternal day. It will never again be night. Jesus is going to return. And that's the prophecy of Malachi 4 and verse 2, that just as the sun S-U-N arises on that eastern horizon and that light chases away the darkness of the night. That is a reminder that one day, according to Malachi 4.2, the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. And just as that sun comes up every single day and a new day dawns, there is coming a day, the sun of righteousness, that is a messianic title. He is going to come, and his light is going to chase away the darkness of the night, and guess what? It's going to be eternal day. It will never again be dark. It'll never again be night. But until then, what are we to do? We're to keep the light bright, shining bright day and night. We're to never, ever let it go out. According to 1 Samuel chapter 3, one of the marks of decay spiritually in Israel's ancient society in the days of the judges is that the priests began letting the candelabra go out at night. They began 
letting uh, the, the candelabra burn out. The priests were not keeping seriously what they'd been told to do. Right here in Leviticus chapter uh, 24. Listen, we're the priests for the day. We're the one to have to keep the light shining bright. The church hasn't done great in this Laodicean hour, but you and I can keep the light shining until Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, one day comes. Now the bread represents, of course, the bread of life. And what does this mean? And what is God teaching? Listen carefully. The implications are obvious. Our responsibility right now is to shine for God, to keep the lamp lit and the table set. The table of showbread, it was to show God. Jesus is the showbread. His purpose is to show God. Remember what he said uh, when uh, he, he was asked, can we see the Father? And his exact words were, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, he is the showbread. He came to show us the Father, to show us God. But in this dark day in which we live, the world can't see Christ unless you and I are shining the light on the showbread, keeping the table set and the lamp lit. Now, we go on. I want to just maybe very quickly hit the rest of this chapter, because if I don't, somebody's going to ask. Hey, what seems like a strange story is told here. A sad story is told here. But the implication is that while Moses is in the tabernacle receiving this revelation from God that we've just studied in Leviticus 24, a very sad situation emerges. He comes out of the tabernacle to share what God has shared with him. And all of a sudden, somebody comes and shares this with him. It says in verse 11, And the Israelite, well, I should start in verse 10. It says, Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Now note that. He's from the tribe of Dan. And then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then ye shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes in the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall uh, have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. My friends, Romans 6.23 has always been true universally. 
the wages of sin is death. And so the situation emerges. What happens, I want you to remember something. This man who was born of an Egyptian father, who has an Israelite mother, gets in a fight with an Israelite. In the course of this fight, he curses God. He blasphemes God. Remember, the Ten Commandments have already been given, and they're infinitely crystal clear. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so um, he curses blasphemes God. Now, I don't think it's coincidental at all that he's born of an Egyptian. Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. There is a picture emerging once again of all the stories that God could have included in this chapter. Why this one? I'm telling you why, because God is picturing once again something in this history that in some capacity should teach us in our modern world, we live personally. And on Egypt being a type of the world, here's the point. Anytime you marry the world, you blaspheme the name of God. And that's the implication of James 4.14. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. There's more than one way to profane his name. And it's not merely when you slip up and let one come out of your lips. It's how you live your life. You see, we live at a time, again, where we're not keeping the lamp lit and we're not shining the light on the table of showbread because while we're in the world to change the world, so much of the time the world gets in us and changes us. That's what's happened to the modern church. And I want you to see in some capacity that is what's being pictured right here now. Now, once again, it's not at all coincidence. He's from the tribe of Dan. Dan of the 12 tribes would be the one that would continually over and over again through the centuries be the very first to fall into idolatry. It would be Dan that would be the very first that would go away into captivity into the hands of their enemies. It would be Dan, listen carefully, that would not be mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 as one of the 12 tribes of the 144,000, the tribe of Dan was always the first to get mixed up in pagan worship, pagan idolatry. The doctrinal application is very clear. Israel is going to bear its sin. Dan would increasingly bear its sin because any time you marry the world, you blaspheme God's name. Let it not be said among us. Not Let it not be uh, said about our church, does your life then shine for his holy name or bring shame to his holy name? You read the rest of this chapter, uh, and what he's saying in the rest of this chapter, um, the punishment will fit the crime. Listen, we have a just God. God gives us grace. For anybody that repents, God offers grace. But for those who will not repent, God offers justice. The wages of sin is death. And I want you to see, that's what he's articulating here uh, as he goes down through the end of this chapter. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye. This seems so unfair. Just, no, 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 listen. God has always been a God of justice. He's now a God of justice. The difference is that because of the new covenant, he brought his justice, which was the wrath of God we deserved, 
upon his own son so that now we can live because Christ died. Guys, I love you a whole bunch and hope you have a really, really awesome week. I'll see you next time. Test, test, all right. Um, my name is Jeff Cox. Phil had asked me to fill in tonight. He had to go to a meeting. And so I'll answer questions, and if you have any specific ones, if not, I can have some things I elaborate from the text. But are there any specific questions that I would get to yours before anything you don't understand from it or you think that's kind of harsh or anything? Anyone? I'll tell you um, some things that I find interesting with it um, that I think we misunderstand in church a lot, so I'll give you some things. Um, so he makes a big deal out of this text about not eating the bread. The priest is going to eat the bread and take care of it. Does anyone know who in the Bible did eat the bread that was a point of controversy? Who was it? It's David. And in Samuel, he's running, and Ahimelech, the high priest, helps him. And he's hungry, and his men are hungry. And so he says, he asks them if they've been sexually pure, and David says yes, and then he lets them eat the bread. Later, Jesus is walking around with his disciples, and they pick food. Does anyone remember what the controversy is? It's on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're upset that his disciples are eating food on the Sabbath. And Jesus, knowing Leviticus 24 and knowing the story of David, he tells them that David even broke the Torah in eating the showbread. But there's a point to his story that I think is really key to why Leviticus 24 is in here. What's Jesus' point? Does anyone remember? Here's what he says. The Son of Man is Lord over the what? The Sabbath. Now, here's what happens. In Leviticus 23, you've gone over the seven festivals, right? So here's the point. And just a couple ideas I would leave you with. How big a deal is ritual? And we, we think it's bad all the time. I'm giving you the answer. How big a deal is ritual in the book of Leviticus? It's a big deal. You're keeping these festivals. You're keeping these feasts. Leviticus 24 is about how you take care of the tabernacle. So Leviticus 23, he's just done that. So rituals are a big deal. Do we have any rituals that we should keep? Two big ones. <laughs> Lord's Supper. What else? Baptism. We've been baptizing people the same way for 2,000 years. It's how... Um, people profess 
their faith in Christ. All countries do it. They do it the same. It takes no special ability. You don't even have to be able to hold your breath. They're going to get you back up. You're not going to drown. Okay? What's the danger, though, with rituals? Say it loud. What? Okay. What else? Okay. They can become a form of godliness. Now, here's what's happening in Leviticus 24. What do you think if you're a Jew, if he doesn't say, do this with the showbread, leave it there, and have the light continually on the showbread? What would be the tendency with any people group with these commands? They would just do it ritualistically. You see what I mean? The worship of God wouldn't be ongoing in their life. So apply that to our culture today. What are things that people do ritualistically once in a while in our culture to show they still worship God, but they don't really have an ongoing, continual worship of God? Give me some things. Well, okay, you said the two big ones. Say them loud. Christmas and Easter. I think that's good. And now Mother's Day, too. That's up there, too, now. Okay, so I'm just telling you. Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day. High attendance. Tons of people come. Okay. What else? I think that's good. Uh, this is my ritualistic thing I do every week. My worship's not ongoing. It's not continual. I'm not continual shining, but I do this ritualistic thing. And, um, and, and not to, you know, we have them too. Um, okay, so if you grew up in kind of um, a different tradition of faith that was high church a little bit, um, Reformed, Anglican, Lutheran, all of that, we'll judge them very ritualistic uh, if you grew up Catholic in how you do the sacraments. It doesn't matter how I necessarily live, but our sacrament is then we would go once a week and partake of the what? The Lord's Supper. Well, we're Baptistic. Our sacrament is I listen to preaching. If you were Catholic, you would never not be able to not take the Lord's Supper at a service, okay? If you grew up in a Baptist, non-denominational world, what's the one thing you can't not do in a service? Somebody better eventually what? Have the call and preach the Bible. Well, that's good. We should learn. But it can be what? Ritualistic. It's not necessarily ongoing worship. So that's one reason um, the story's in there. And, uh, and, and the, the reason Jesus uses it specifically, the Pharisees had taken the Torah and were trying to trick him and make it ritualistic. And Jesus was simply saying this, you were not supposed to take it and turn it into some legalistic ritualism. Meaning when David's men were starving, it was okay for them to eat the what? The bread. And when my disciples are hungry on the Sabbath, it's okay them, for them to eat what? As well. And then he makes this comment, I'm Lord of the what? Sabbath, I'm Lord of the tabernacle. And that's something that's interesting. The other thing I'll leave you with, and then um, he actually, it's a long video. The thing at the end, and I really like what Phil said, it's about justice. Okay? So the eye for an eye. And this is really misunderstood in the Western world a lot. It's called lex talionis. It's um, Latin. Lex means a law, talionis. You can see the English coming out of it, retaliation. Okay? And often we see it as very harsh. You know what I mean? 
eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But actually, it was merciful. And, and a lot of times, we think about it the wrong way. Does anyone want to, in what sense was it merciful? Because what is man's tendency when it comes to punishment? Yeah, it's got to be worse. Payback. Um, I'll give it to you. In our Bill of Rights, no cruel and what? Why would you have to make that a law? Because man's tendency is to punish above, not less. Now, back at that time in Mesopotamia, when the Torah is given, there's the code of the Assyrians and the code of Hammurabi. And in those codes, capital punishment was often, and it was common for it to be for financial things, okay? Like if you steal, the punishment is death. If you don't keep a ritual, the punishment is death. When God gives the Torah, the way to understand it is you compare it to the nations around it, but it was merciful, meaning this you won't make the punishment above the what? The crime, the offense. You won't do that. That's why you can't steal somebody's lamb and get stoned to death. You won't do that. So that's interesting in two ways. The first one is this. You can tell what was really important to God. So from this story, it's going to be blasphemy was important to God. Obviously, taking human life. And the last one is family. Things that would destroy family. Murder, adultery, cursing your parents. But you wouldn't apply capital punishment for stealing someone's lamb or stealing a goat. You see what I mean? It was different, meaning that is the way God administered justice. There was another way. Would you be partial and play favorites? So what's interesting about this story that really sticks out, why is this story in there? Well, first of all, these laws were kind of developed as things happened. So when this person blasphemes, they run to Moses and they go, what are we supposed to do now? And then they would interpret the laws and they would become precedent for later. Well, here's what made this story unique. Not that someone blasphemed. What do you think is the big deal of the story? And it's Phil's last point as a picture, but what makes this unique? Yes, good, Gail. His father is Egyptian and his mother's Jewish. So now we have this question Will everyone be treated the what? The same. So do you think in different countries that that can be a, a big deal or not? Yes. Do you think justice can sometimes not be enacted because some groups of people are punished more than other groups of people, yes or no? Yes, it does happen. It happens all the time. Any study of our judicial system would show that minorities are punished more and harsher. It happens in every society. What made the Jews different with the Torah is he came along and he said, listen, uh, everyone will be treated the what? The same. I'll give you two things that are interesting about it. These are things that jump out to me that, that you might not know. You might already, but I like to 
think of things. You know, Phil already did 51 minutes. I got to say something he didn't, okay? So I'll give you two other things that I think are interesting that stick out to me. Jesus later at the Sermon on the Mount is preaching, and he says something very interesting. He goes, it's been said to you an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, which is quoting the Torah, the Lex Talionis. Oh, thank you. Does anyone know what Jesus says in that context? But he says, but I say to you, it's interesting. Does anyone know what it is? He says, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for them which use you despitefully. So the question is, and people say, does Jesus overthrow the Torah or did it change? Not really. Here's what's happening. The Torah was given to keep the community. It's like a judicial system to keep us from going and killing each other. That principle was not meant to be taken in my life personally. Okay? That means if Dan steals from me personally, I shouldn't try to get what? Vengeance, even. What they were doing was taking the principle from the Torah, and they weren't forgiving anyone. (laughs) They were taking a principle that was to guide the community, right? And they were using it themselves to try to get even. And in that context, Jesus says, no. You should do what with your enemies? Love them, pray for them, and things like that. So that's how you can understand that. And the last one I'll give you, which is interesting, um, who is supposed to put their head on the person to stone them? Who all, and this is very important, because I'm going to give you, I'm in the counseling center, I'm going to give you the most misapplied, ripped out of context passage in the whole Bible, so I'll just give it to you here. They were the witnesses. In the Torah, it said that you had to have two or three what? Witnesses. Okay. Does anyone know a passage in the New Testament that says you need to get two or three witnesses? Very good. Thank you. Matthew 18 says, if I've gone to to Bill and he's wronged me, I go by myself And then if not, I get two or three what? That every word should be established. I will tell you how most people apply that. Bill's wronged me, and I go confront him about it, and he doesn't repent to my satisfaction. So then I'm going to run out and get Dan and Gail, and they're going to sit in a meeting with us and witness our what? Our conversation. More likely being the books written by Jews with a Jewish understanding, how would a Jew have understood, go get two or three witnesses? Two or three witnesses to the actual what? The act. Meaning the people, there had to be witnesses before you're going to go kill this guy. Meaning if I just think Bill has sinned against me, I can't just grab two people that were not what? privy or witnesses of it, and just have them witness our conversation and just go through this whole process. That's usually what people think it is in church. I've gone and confronted somebody, I didn't get what they want, rather than just forgive them and go down the road, want me to get two other people to listen to our conversation. More likely, they would have understood what the Torah means. Does that make sense to you? Meaning, Jesus, when he's talking about two or three witnesses to his disciples, 
What context would they have understood? They would have understood the Torah, what it meant to get two or three witnesses. To kill this person, they actually had to witness him doing the what? The blasphemy, meaning the guy he got in a fight with, you know, say he beat him up. Well, he beat me up, but he blasphemed God, so he's going to get killed anyway. That wouldn't fly. You had to have the witnesses. So the big things to, I would just throw in to leave with that, number one, it's continual worship so we don't become ritualistic. Number two, when you hear an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, it was merciful compared to the other countries and nations, Hammurabi, meaning the crime had to be commensurate with the act. And to be honest with you, it wasn't always taken literally, and that was okay with God, meaning sometimes, like if you hit your slave and you knocked a tooth out back then, the slave went free. I mean, sometimes they got more freedom out of it, or if you took a lamb, you would pay for it back, meaning they didn't always do it. But the times they did it were serious. Number one, death penalty, if you killed someone. Number two, sins against family. And three, blasphemy against God. Those were the ones where they did it. So sometimes we'll think it seems harsh back then, but if you understand the whole context of what's going on, it's more. And next time somebody sins against you and you don't get your way, rather than drag two other people into it to hear the story, just go ahead and what? Forgive them and get on down the road. You'll save everyone a lot of time. So anyway, all right. Thanks for being here tonight. It was a good day. Chiefs, right? It's hard to watch though, wasn't it? We'll take it anyway. So let me close this in prayer. Dear Lord, I love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you how we can learn. Uh, thank you for Pastor Phil and his diligence to prepare. Uh, Lord, just the things you show me every time. And um, Lord, just pray we'd apply them to our life. Uh, Lord, we would be people of justice, but we'd be people of forgiveness. Uh, that we would keep the rituals that you've given us, the Lord's table and baptism in all seriousness, Lord. But that wouldn't be all that describes our worship. It would be continual forever in this dark age we live. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.